0: Welcome to Manifold. Today my guest is Carl Za. He is the producer of the Silk and Steel podcast, which is a podcast about I think Chinese history and culture are two of the main topics, but I think he sometimes diverges into other things like uh, even geopolitics. Carl is also a very well-known, I think he sometimes describes himself as a shit poster. He tweets at, at Carl Zha on Twitter, that's his handle. And he has something like 100,000 followers almost. So he's, he's quite a presence on Twitter. He was born in China, but grew up in the United States. And like me, attended Caltech as an undergraduate. Worked as an engineer and now lives in Bali. And he's completely fluent in both English and Chinese. So he has a very unique insight into China, US issues. So I've I've been meaning to have Carl on the podcast for a long time. I saw that he was very active in discussions about the Ukraine crisis. And that's something that we're going to get into. So I'm very happy to finally have Carl on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Stefan. Thank you very much for the invitation. Great. Now, what I'd like to do with my guests is just start out with a little
0: biographical information, because I think it helps people understand your perspective and you know, where you come from. So as I said in the little intro, you were born in China. What part
1: of China? I was born in the southwestern part of China in this largely unknown in the west metropolis called Chongqing. The, the whole Chongqing municipality has like 30, over 30 million people, but the urban area has about eight, nine million people. So it's, it's a big place, but I, I doubt very, very much people outside of China have heard of it. It was the China's wartime capital during World War II. And I was born there in 1976, just one month after Mao died. So I was born, I'm the first post-cultural generation, post-cultural revolution generation. And I spent most of my elementary school, all, actually all my elementary school in china through 1980s and i came to united states in 1990 in the aftermath of the Tiananmen square protest because initially my 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 dad was the first generation chinese students who came to study in u.s after the nixon visit to china and so he came to us in 1985 to pursue his phd and his original plan was Get his PhD and return back to China, where he was already a lecturer at the Chongqing University. Upon his return, he will basically be guaranteed like a ten-year professorship. But 1989 Tiananmen Square protests happened, and like many overseas Chinese students, my my parents also joined the protest. So both my 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 mom joined my dad in 1987. Uh, so I was. Left alone with my sister in Chongqing, be taken care of by our our grandma. And after 1989 student protest crackdown, my parents, like many of uh, their generation, they also protested in U.S. outside of the Chinese consulate. And they also then they decided they will not return to China, and they they started the process to bring me out to United States. I was age. I was 13, almost 14 in October, 1990, when I first came to United States. So it's, uh, it's an interesting age. Uh, but the China I grew up in, uh, in 1980s was the China under Deng Xiaoping's open and reforming form era. So maybe I was sheltered uh, as a child, but I had a very happy childhood in China. So I always have fond memories and just from growing up i can observe that lives were getting better and better Uh, i I still remember in 1980 when i was four years old my mom used her savings to buy my grandparents a black and white television and that was a first television in kind of like the (laughs) the, the, whole residential neighborhood so all the kids will come to grandma's house to watch tv (laughs) that was 1980 and we didn't have our First color TV until I think 1986. You know, after my dad already came to United States, he sent back his savings. At that time, at that time in China, you can't even buy imported goods freely. You have to have foreign currency. Um, and you, so my dad sent back U.S. dollars. My my mom then got uh, in exchange at the <laughs> Bank of China for back then, so-called the foreign exchange certificate. So with the foreign exchange certificate, you can go to a specific store called the friendship store, w- which it was catered to foreigners and the people with hard currency. So, so with that, they bought a Panasonic color TV. That was 1986. So I remember this vividly because uh, uh, cause this is kind of like the, when the markers of my childhood. <laughs> we, we changed from the black and white TV to, to a color television. Uh, and back then, China didn't produce a lot of these uh, consumer goods either, because like I said, back in 1986, there were many, uh, I don't think, I don't know if there's any domestically produced color TV in China. So everything has to be imported, you know, from fertilizer to transistor radio. You know to get a sony radio or or like uh not even walkman just just a radio that was a prestige thing in china back then like to get married there's like four big items you need gotta have you know was uh first it was bicycle a sewing machine uh and then got changed to um you know you gotta have the the radio (laughs) you gotta have a color tv you gotta have a refrigerator um and, and China didn't even produce refri- refrigerator back then, I don't think. Because my we also bought um our first ref- refrigerator, which again was uh through remittance from my dad. And we my my mom bought another uh Japanese made uh refrigerator in in the friendship store. But just a year later I started noticing my my classmates' parents they start to buy also buy color TV and fridge, but they're they're now being domestically made, made in China, and that's that's the beginning of the the, the made in China trend. I still remember coming to United States in nineteen ninety. Like I it was, it was a game for us to find made in China items in, in United States. I would get so excited. In the Christmas nineteen ninety, we found a teddy bear that was made in China, <laughs> and my parents bought. <laughs> And my parents bought it for me because it was it was an exciting thing to find made in China item back then. Of course, like a few years later, <laughs> everything's made in China. So, so it, yeah. yeah, go it,
0: ahead. It, it's interesting that, you know, like a true Caltech uh, geek, you know, it's it's electronic appliances that are the milestone <laughs> purchases that you remember. I want to ask you, do you remember Meat Scarcity? Like Ah. not having a lot of meat, or maybe your grandmother would give you her meat portion. That's something that I think Westerners, you know, they can maybe understand. Even I can understand growing up in Iowa, remembering like when we got our first big color TV and it was kind of a big deal or something. I'm older than you, of course, but something like meat scarcity is something that I think Americans can't
1: imagine. Yeah. So when I was growing up in 1980s China, ration was still a thing. You know, you 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 need ration paper to purchase anything from state operated store. So it's from sugar to clothes to oil to to include meat. Uh, and it's only only it, it <clears throat> when I started to walk, uh you know, maybe not not, not start to walk when I'm four to five years old, like in early nineteen eighties. That's when they first started to allow so-called free market, 自由市场 in China. Those are just basically farmers market, where the farmers will bring their produce directly to the city to sell to the consumers. Because before that, you have to buy everything from the state. The state, you know, they they buy everything from the farmers, and then they sell at the specific uh, state designated store. And in the city, as a city resident, we have to have ration papers to be able to buy and and there's quotas for each like for us so I remember as a 13 year old teenager I actually have higher rice allotment than the rest of my family members <laughs> because as a growing teen I am entitled to have more rice and the ration system only got phased out during the end of 1980s like so just before I left China the rations were used less and less i remember it was when there was a lot of rural migrants who started to come to city to work, because before, you know, before China, the movement was strictly controlled. You know, before before seventies, uh, if you're rural migrants, if your household registration is in the countryside, you, you you can't very easily move to the city. But 1980s is when first that that relaxation. There's a relaxation in that restriction and a lot of rural youth start to come to cities for work, but they couldn't get the urban resident benefit, for example, for the ration papers. So I remember a lot of farmers' girls will come around our neighborhood, bring eggs to trade for rice ration papers. And we have Mm -hmm. a lot of rice ration papers, so we would trade them for eggs. It was a thing back in 1980. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, you know, you came to the U.S. at a very... Special age, so you 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 were old enough to remember to have pretty mature memories of growing up in China, and then it must have been quite a shock for you. To
1: where did you where did you immigrate to initially? I landed in Chicago. So t- to give a little perspective, I-, I didn't actually wanted to come to U.S. because I was free in China. Like my parents are in United States. My grandpa had some health conditions and my grandma spent most of the time taking care of him. So basically nobody really managed me and my sister. My my sister is older. And so I had a lot of freedom. <laughs> and I didn't wanted to come to the United States and be under the thumb of my parents again. And in China, before I came to United States, I spent one year at home because I contracted hepatitis A through sharing food with my friend. And I was hospitalized for a couple of months, and then I wasn't able to catch up with the uh, schoolwork, so I stay home for a month. Oh, by the way, that my hospitalization was all that was all free because back then China was still running a like a socialist central plan economy. If you're an urban resident like my grandparents, my grandma was a, a school teacher at this textile factory attached school, so she a, and each work unit, each like a factory, they will have their own kind of complete welfare system, like kindergarten, schools, and hospitals. So I would go to all these for free, but after two months, I, I, the, the the Chinese, School work is serious work. It's it's like after two months of not attending to school, I cannot catch up, so I have to just stay behind the grade. And that whole year, I stayed at home and I read a lot, magazines, anything. At that time, a lot of the Western ideas are starting to filter into China, right? You know, I read Chinese magazine talking about how small government is the best government. (laughs) So all the Republican ideas also getting filtered into China, and. I also read about how Japan is rising and United States is in decline. This is late eighties, right at the height of the Japan bubble. So when I came to us, my parents were poor because my dad was supporting a family of four on his postdoc income. He was working at University of Illinois at Chicago. And so we lived in like 31st hosted, you know, very you know, working class neighborhood and we're so poor that I qualify for free lunch at school. And I remember after eighth grade, because my English wasn't that good. There are not much, not many options for me to attend high school. So I ended up going to Kenwood Academy in South Side of Chicago, in Hyde Park, just outside of University of Chicago. So I don't know if you know University of Chicago, but University of Chicago is a ghetto within a ghetto, like I used <laughs> to say. But my high school was just outside of it. So we are in the ghetto. I mean, if you go to the description of Kingwood Academy today, you will say something like, oh, 93% of the student enrollment is minority students. Yeah, of course, minority is a euphemism because, <laughs> I mean, what, what, is, what is 90%? 93% of the student body is really not minority anymore. So my school was like 80, 85% Black, maybe two point five percent Asian. So I was that two point five percent Asian. And I remember seeing people getting shot in the schoolyard. Like one day I was getting off the math team practice like a typical Asian nerd. And right outside, leaving the school building, some girl ran in so saw so-and-so got shot. And everybody was rush- rushing in to see the body. It's kind of crazy. Now <laughs> think about it. Oh, I I wanted to go see too, but my bus was coming and I have a hour and a half bus ride to to catch, to go home. So I took, I, you know, ran for the bus, only saw the crowd gathering around the body. And then later when I watched evening news, it said somebody got killed in my school, a schoolyard shooting. And I had to take one hour and a half bus ride through South side of Chicago, you know, through all the dilapidated buildings and housing projects. And at that time, I really thought, oh, my God, it's true what I read in the Chinese magazines. <laughs> the Chi- United States is in decline. You know, I came too late. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, because, you know, I, I would see dilapidated infrastructure, just all the neighborhood in ruins. And so for me, my strong motivation in high school was to get out, get out of inner city, to get to, to the middle class, right? The American dream. And so I did that and I work hard. I was like your typical, I guess, like your model minority myth, right? I, I study, I bury my head in my books. I study for SAT and I test it out. So after spending freshman year in Kingwood Academy, I found this opportunity through my dad's friends that there's this school in Aurora, Illinois called IMSA, Illinois Maths and Science Academy. It's like a- Yeah, it's very famous. Yeah, it's an experimental school where they get state funding from basically the same pool funds for the for the colleges. So they were able to run like experimental curriculum on us so using us as skinny pigs. But they take like top two percent or top one percent of the the high school students from all across the state. So to get in you have to take SAT, you have to get teachers' recommendation, write essay. Basically it's just like a mini college application process. And I work for a whole like my first year in uh, freshman year, I just basically spent the entire year studying English, uh, working on SAT, and and eventually I got in. And for me, that was my escape. You know, my escape from the urban decay of America. Yeah, and you,
0: you were you were boarding there, is that right?
1: Yes, yes, because you have to live on campus, even if you if your home is like a block from the from the school, you have to live on campus. So for me, that was that that's the greatest gift because I was. I was like, what, 15, 16. I was living away from my parents again, <laughs> freedom, you know, I, that's, that was, that's what inspired me. Um, so I got, it's, so it's like live on a college campus basically. And we have to go home once a month because school knows otherwise we, we would never go home. So they kick us out, <laughs> they kick us out once they shut down the school campus once a month, force us to go home. And. But that was my escape because uh, our school was in the middle of the cornfield. And to me, that was paradise. You know, it's a totally different world from inner city Chicago where I, you know, where I was used to. That just kind of stiffened my resolve to get into middle class, you know, join the ranks of American dream. So you know, I studied SAT again, you know, applied for college, got into Caltech. And at that time, I thought I'm kind of the, you know, I was, I really felt I was living the American dream. You know, I'm like this poor immigrant boy who got into Caltech through hard work. And so, yeah, so this is kind of my background. Sorry for taking so long.
0: No, it was very interesting, but uh, maybe I can ask you some questions. So I'm curious because you were very conscious of wanting to climb out of deprivation and make it into the middle class. Were you, strategic about choosing, for example, going to uh engineering-focused school and pursuing engineering as a career? Maybe not because you liked the subject so much, but just because you knew it was economically advantageous?
1: That's definitely a reason. Also because my dad was an engineer, right? At the time, my choices was either going to engineering or medicine. But my dad finally landed a private sector job in 1995 after the economy. Um, got better, but still like I didn't want to burden them with uh, having to support me through eight years of med school. So I thought, you know, by, by choosing engineering route, that's the fastest way for me to achieve financial independence or so I thought, so I, I thought that, that, yeah, definitely that's, that's one reason I, I chose engineering.
0: Yeah. That's a very immigrant st- kind of story, you know, for me, because my dad was already a professor. I I actually grew up in a very similar environment because I grew up in Iowa. And so I lived, you know, my neighbors had cornfields and things like this too. I lived out in the country and went to kind of not as elite a high school as the one that you attended, but kind of an elite high school because it was the only high school in this uh, college town. But I had the luxury of not being worried about climbing the social ladder. I was already securely in the middle class or upper middle class. And so I could say, oh, I'm going to do theoretical physics because I'm, that's what I'm most interested in. And Richard Feynman is my hero. Mm. Whereas I think in your case, you were like a lot of people choosing their course of study really for, you know, economic reasons.
1: Yes. Yes. A very, my, my is a very typical kind of immigrant. I'm, I guess I'm the 1.5 generation <laughs> immigrant. Yep. So yeah, yeah, it's very typical because my, my parents, they would they, they just wanted. Me, you know, their biggest hope for me is that I will get a a good paying job that, you know, I will live my American dream. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Coming back to Tiananmen, Mm
1: -hmm. your parents were actually involved in... So my parents were not, because they're already in United States, right? So they they, they went to the protest rally outside of the Chinese consulate in Chicago. I was in Chongqing, at the time at the time there's protests all over china not just beijing you know of course Tiananmen was a focal point uh and i lived on the Chongqing university campus because my dad was a lecturer there and and he kept his housing you know even though he was uh, in us because he, at that time he was <laughs> intending to come back because the university provided housing for his faculty. So at the time, initially, I thought, oh, man, these college students, they just don't want to go to school, man. just—they <laughs> just just, This is just like a holiday for them. Because I lived on campus since 1982, and there has been all sort of student protests every year. Uh, the very first student protest I experienced was before I started the first grade. There was a lot of tunnels dug in Chongqing both as an anti-airway shelter during World War II against the Japanese uh, bombing of Chongqing, and during Cultural Revolution when Mao's China thought it might have to fight two-front war against both Soviet Union and United States. Chongqing is a very hilly city, but the entire hills are being dug out and there's tunnels underneath. But after 1980s, you know, when the Cold War was already winding down, and and US China relationship was actually in its honeymoon phase so university of Chongqing rented out those, its own tunnels to like uh, enterprising farmers to raise mushrooms and <laughs> and and when the farmers went in tunnels They somehow found something, some kind of nuclear, some radioactive, I guess some radioactive stuff, found some experiment back in the days. And then the Chongqing University student organized a huge protest. I remember the banners they held, like Huang Wo Chinchun, you know, give back my youth (laughs) because they they, they were outraged, there were like radioactive material stored on campus. So when Tiananmen Square protests first started, I thought it's just going to be one of those. You know, I thought oh, those those college students being frivolous again. They're 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 they just don't want to go to school. I was a little bit resentful and jealous because our high school still. You know, I went to junior high at then uh, seventh grade, so we still had to go to school. Whereas the college students they didn't, they didn't have right. classes anymore. But at one point, all segment of society was joining in. You know, I even ha- had my elementary school teachers, their, their teacher union, <laughs> went to the, went on the street. So I also went to the Chongqing, uh, you know, the city's center. It's very exhilarating in, in any kind of mass movement. You, you, like all these people you look up to, they're all like on the street protesting. And so I, I started something in my school, in my junior high, I posted a poster calling, uh, because this was right around the time when <clears throat> like, central government in China was kind of waffling back and forth on its position. There, I guess there was a power struggle at the top between two different factions. But there was one point where they said, oh, the student movement is a patriotic movement. And so I took that opportunity to, you know, write a poster in my junior high to in support of the college students, and and then I got and all the because at the time my motivation was just like I I don't want to go to school anymore. I want to <laughs> I want to stop classes, and then all my classmates, you know, they they kind of fed me around as a hero, and it, it felt good. You felt good, but <laughs> the, my plan didn't work. We still had to go to school. Our Homeroom teacher was like an old communist lady, and she's like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. We understand that the state said it's a patriotic movement, but you know, to be patriotic, you first need to be educated. So get back, to, get back to class." Yeah. Uh, so that was my experience of the Tiananmen Square because Songjin is one of the few cities that there wasn't there wasn't a lot of violence. The only thing that happened was on the new. It was really weird, Tiananmen Square, because the state media, CCTV was broadcasting live every day, you know, what's going on in Beijing, Tiananmen Square. So we, we saw the, the people uh, of Beijing stopping the army trucks from going in, you know, the, the army was uh, stuck outside of Beijing for a week, right? And we, we saw that on state television. And then, again, I think that's because the power struggle at the top, you know. But then on June 4th, I remember suddenly all the television broadcasts stopped. The, the TV went blank. Because at that time, everybody was glued to their t- television to watch what's going on in Beijing. But from the afternoon to evening until the next day, the, 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 the TV went out for, for a whole 24 hours. And when you came back on again they, they said, Oh, there was a counter revolutionary riot in Beijing that the People's Liberation Army have to put down. So it was a big shock for a lot of people. Because at that time the the, the students actually had a lot of popular support. And everybody was kind of whiplashed by kind of the hundred eighty degree turn of the kind of the government. Stands because one moment they say the student movement was a patriotic movement and the next thing they say there was a counter-revolution riot we don't know what to believe and and then after the after school started again next year actually was it before after the school started so again our homeroom teacher the old communist lady organized us to watch a state-produced documentary of how everything went down so we saw we saw burning of tanks. We saw like people throwing Molotov cocktails at tanks, and uh, soldiers being dragged from the burning tanks, and and then being lynched, and 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 then getting their getting disemboweled and, and and burned on the bridge. And so they say, yeah, this is why the the army had to 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 go in. So, but do you think like, that was
0: real? Do you think the film, the video that you saw, was real, or do you think it was fake? No,
1: nah, it was real. I mean, there's a lot of uh, you, you, people can search but of course the, the state exaggerated because um like when they did announce the the the, the special like the um the, what they call it the the waste mm-hmm. the guard of republic to the, the soldier martyrs but there were only a few there were only like a handful of soldiers who died so you know compared to the the other casualties because the the Tiananmen mother they find they found out about names of about 200 um, 200 Beijing residents who died. You know, compared mm-hmm. to a handful of soldiers. So that's the first time I encountered kind of this different-sided narrative. Because when I came to the United States, my my parents showed me the CNN footage. Right, they show the 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 footage of P- People's Liberation Army opening fire on the crowd, and and that that is when I I kind of encountered this totally kind of almost like black and white. You know, narrative. At one point, I, I remember at IMSA, I asked my history teacher, who is actually a Native American graduate from Stanford. And I said, Look, like the, the history I learned in China and the history I learned in the United States is almost like polar opposite, right? How do I reconcile these two completely different opposite narratives? He said, Oh, <clears throat> you know, you just got to read a lot, so read all the resources. And then you can flesh out the big picture. At that time, I thought his advice is totally useless. I mean, like, <laughs> my problem is they're totally opposite. How do I reconcile, right? Just read more of them. How do I, you know, even make sense out of it? But <clears throat> it turns out, I think he's right. He, he's right. You got to you gotta read all sides and then come to your own conclusion.
0: Yeah, I, I think that advice is particularly appropriate in this moment, Um not just talking about Ukraine, but just in general, there are so many competing narratives on almost every topic now. It's very tough to know what to believe. And you could even take a radical view that history is kind of impossible in the sense that we don't even really know what happened, say, you know, in the last election or when Kennedy was shot or something, let alone what happened, say, 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. So it seems
1: like there's a high degree of uncertainty in almost everything. Yeah, that's that's why actually I love history because history for me is like detective work. You have to know how to read between the lines. Uh, you gotta you gotta read the official you know annals, and then you gotta read the unofficial history, and then you you gotta kind of tease out the truth from from the official narratives. It's so, so for me, that's fun. And, and like my my original intent for starting my podcast Silicon so Steel was to kind of share my love of Chinese history and Chinese culture to Anglophone audience. But yeah, but I as you mentioned, I kind of got pushed into doing the politics of it because today in the increasing US-China tensions, I just see a lot of disinfo info floating around and I felt- yeah, look- yeah go ahead. let's
0: let's get to that. but just to finish up your biography, so you went to Caltech, you studied engineering at Caltech Electrical Engineering?
1: Yeah, I graduated in 2000. You know back then, there weren't even a, a computer science department. But when I graduated, that was the height of the first internet bubble. Um, everybody, even English lit majors w- went into internet startups. So I joined an internet software company. I joined their professional service arm. A vignette, which was a counter management uh, company, that was. Oh, sure. up- I remember vignette. What, yeah, were you in? The, were you in the Bay Area? No, no. Uh, so their headquarters in Austin, Texas, but my okay. brother-in-law joined early, and so he he got a referral bonus out of me, <laughs> and they at that time they just uh, they just. Wa- at that time all the internet bo- uh, companies they just want warm bodies you know you, you can type okay good <laughs> you're you're hired and uh, so yeah so i got i got hired before i even graduated from caltech um, and and because i had to go back to finish some classes and then then yeah i started working um december 1999 like just few months left before the internet bubble burst <laughs> yeah
0: Yeah, so you worked in tech basically from that point in time until yes. you wanted to take a year off. And so
1: that's how you ended up traveling here in, in Asia. What year was that? Uh, the end of 2018, actually. 2018, the, the company that I was working for, their largest client is Toyota. And Toyota decided they're going to cut costs by moving their headquarters from Torrance, California to Plano, Texas. And I, I, I'm a surfer. I love surfing. And I know... From Plano, Texas, is six hours to the ocean in either direction. So there's no <laughs> way I'm gonna move to Plano. And so I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity for me to just take take some time off and travel around Asia. It just so happened one uh, of my friend, my internet friend, who is an Aussie English teacher in kind of the most remote corner of China. He's working at this border town between China and Myanmar. And he told me that <clears throat> the, the, the place where he work at, the city he work at, holds the largest water festival in China. Uh, the water festival is just like the same as the Thai Songkran. It's like the Thai New Year. And the, the, the Thai people in the region, they have a very historical tie you know, with people in Thailand and, and Myanmar. And so so that it uh, water festival is huge cuz I always uh, told him you know I wanted to experience the water festival because I saw a, a, a part of a, a as a part of a dance in the in the pre-cultural revolution musical the Yeast is Red there, like the my favorite part of Isis Red musical is actually the nationality dance the different uh, Chinese nationalities doing their traditional dance and there was a part featuring water festival of Dai Women. And I and he said, Oh, he invited me to go. So I just jumped at the opportunity. At that time I didn't plan to leave the United States. You know, I just put my stuff in storage. I went to China and then I I, I traveled around and then I haven't surfed for a long time. So I decided to go to Bali for a couple of months to to get my surfing on. And then when I was in Bali, I, I realized, I remember distinctly, I was uh, at the surf line, I was talking to people, fellow surfers. I asked them, oh, how long have you been in Bali? I expect them to say, oh, the last two weeks, uh, like uh, maybe a month. And they said, oh, I've been here for six years. I'm like, what? How do you do that? They say, oh, it's easy. You just do visa runs. You just fly to Singapore and Malaysia for a day and come back. <laughs> because, because before pandemic, as American citizen, you 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 have, um, you know, you don't you don't need visa. You know, you, you, you have visa free entry to places like Indonesia. You get automatic thirty days. And when you land at the airport, you have the option to get visa on arrival. You pay like thirty five bucks for visa on arrival, which allow you to extend for another month. So a lot of people were doing that, and I thought, "Wow, why, why nobody told me about this like ten years ago? <laughs> I could have been in Bali for ten years." Uh, so that that's that's my story. That's how I ended up in Bali.
0: So since then, you've been living the digital nomad dream in
1: Bali. Is that <laughs> fair? Yeah. Well, I initially I was living on my savings, and then eventually I built enough uh, internet notoriety to get a, a a small following on Patreon. So now, yes, now I, I'm able to support myself uh, on my Patreon income, me and my family. So I'm grateful for that.
0: So one of the topics I, I wanted to get to is the topic of Xinjiang. And I think I, I've seen a fair amount of discussion by you and around you about what is actually happening in Xinjiang. And this is a very controversial topic, obviously, with, you know, the United States and the West going all, you know, getting to the point where they're actually charging China with genocide and pointing to, for example, satellite photographs of concentration camps in Xinjiang. Yes. And, you know, I've traveled in China many times, but I've never been able to travel to either the Southwest or the Northwest. So I've never been to Xinjiang. Because I was interested in eventually taking a trip there, I was watching a lot of YouTube travel video, both of areas like Yunnan, but also areas like uh, Xinjiang. And I could tell from what the travelers were saying that it was totally inconsistent with what I was reading in the media about the state of, you know, there were some issues with terrorism and there was a crackdown on uh, Islamic terrorism. In Xinjiang, and I'm sure there were probably human rights abuses. I mean, it's an authoritarian government and they don't fool around. And, and these terrorist knife, I, I think it was knife, but
1: also maybe bomb attacks. Yeah, both, both. They had the infamous Kunming train station knife attacks where I think 20 people were killed. And then there was bombing, uh, attack at the Urumqi train station, uh, to coincide with uh, Xi Jinping's visit. Yeah.
0: Yes. So I guess one of my goals is to give the audience your best estimate of what is really happening there. And just to give my background of it, I mean, I was aware of these, you know, terrorist incidents. And then obviously you can expect that, you know, an authoritarian government like in China is going to react in a pretty decisive manner against that. And so maybe there were some human rights abuses and maybe, you know, some action against, you know, groups that the government regarded as extremists. Because there were so many people traveling through Xinjiang, including like, there's one famous like Australian guy who was like bicycling yeah, through Xinjiang. Yeah. I interviewed Yeah, Yeah. And, and, and so I watched all this stuff, not because I was particularly interested in the political situation, because I was actually just thinking of traveling there on vacation. Because it's it was an exotic place I was always interested in.
1: That's but, something people don't know. So if you have a Chinese visa, if you're allowed inside China, then you can travel to Xinjiang. There's no extra restriction on traveling to Xinjiang.
0: Absolutely. And your yuppie friends in Shanghai can go to Xinjiang <laughs> for the weekend yep. and take video and put the video online and other people like me can watch it. So, so the idea that they could hide a genocide with so much flow of people, including Western tourists, including Chinese tourists from within China, and everybody has a cell phone camera. It just seemed to me absurd because just even by just sitting on my butt and watching YouTube, I could tell that what I was being told by the New York Times didn't seem accurate at all. And so anyway, that, look, I just want to cue you up and maybe you can first just start with a general statement about what you think is really going on there. And then we can get into more details.
1: Yeah, sure. So the situation really um, came to a head in two thousand and nine, Urumchi uh, riot, July, July fifth, two thousand and nine, Urumchi riot, where basically nearly two hundred people were killed, two thousand people were injured, and the the victims were mostly Han Chinese residents in the city. And after that. There has been security crackdown in Xinjiang since 2009 because that was a pretty shocking incident in China. You know, something like this haven't happened, you know, in in decades. And then a spate of more serious, uh, equally, I would say, not more serious, serious incident happened around around the time of Syrian war, actually, from 2012 to 2014. So first, there was uh, attack. In Tiananmen Square, a group of <laughs> Uyghur separatists they drove a van loaded with explosive onto Tiananmen Square, and they were ramming into the crowd. Uh, but it's it's not I do maybe it's not home. Uh, it's it's either uh, uh, I think it's a can of oil uh, of gasoline that they brought on, on board. And so, anyway, they 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 ran into the uh, into the crowd and then lit the car on fire and exploded. And but that, that again that was pretty shocking. And then the big shock was the Kunming train station attack, because uh, there has been a series of attacks inside Xinjiang, but people in the rest part of China thought that was a localized Xinjiang problem, and until the attack in Tiananmen Square, and then in twenty March 1st, 2014, in Kunming train station in the capital Yunnan province, all the way to the southwest of of China, as far as from Xinjiang as possible. Eight uh, Uyghur militants armed with knives start slashing at people, killing 20, 20 people, injuring many more, and and those got national headlines. And since and then, as I mentioned, there was also a series of bombings in urumqi People were driving SUVs into the, the morning market and, and and throwing bombs at at you know people people setting up shops, setting up uh, street vendors, basically and and after that uh <clears throat> chinese state started a series of uh security crackdown first they they blocked um all the access of xinjiang to central asia <clears throat> and then i think that is why those uh Uyghur militants actually travel all the way to yunnan uh because there was also starting from 2012 there's uh, a stream of uh, Uyghur refugees start to appear in places like uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia. But their their end goal was <clears throat> to reach Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur airport. When, when they reached Kuala Lumpur, at the Turkish consulate, where they would re- receive the Turkish passport, allow them to fly to Turkey, and. As soon as they step off their plane in Istanbul, they're greeted by jihadist recruiters to urge them to go on to Syria. Now, this is reported in Associated Press, right? So people can look that up. And, and you know, thousands of Uyghur fighters ended up in, in Idlib province of Syria, northwest Syria. So, so this has been an ongoing problem. And starting from twenty seventeen, uh, that's when Chinese government really started the the, the hard crackdowns. So that that's when they have the they they built the so called vocational training centers. I mean, they should they might as well just call them deradicalization centers because that's what they are. And and then there are a lot of people who are suspected of harboring sympathies for the terrorists. Were, were sent there. And, and there, there's like different levels of kind of so called re education. One is you uh, go, <clears throat> you just have to go uh, spend like half a day uh, during the daytime and then you can get to go home. Uh, the other t- type of uh, uh, re education is where you have to stay in the center, you know, it's basically incarceration. Um, and and that that's that's getting picked up by in the West. First, uh, there were two the primary reports. That's all the Western media is based on. Uh, one is from the human China Human Rights Defenders, which is an NED sponsored uh, founded group. And I read the reports. My 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 friend queued me up to it. Their report supposedly is based on supposed interview of eight Uyghur villagers from eight villages in southern Kashgar. And based on the villagers' testimonial, they extrapolated from the population of those eight villages to the entire population of Xinjiang. So they said, okay, we estimate about 10% of the people, uh, nine to 10% of the people from the villages are being Sent to these uh, re-education centers. So, if we extrapolate to the entire Uyghur population of Xinjiang, which is like eleven to twelve million, we get one million figure. That's that's they said that in the report, China Human Rights Defender Report, and, and so they even put a caveat in the report. We we must uh, you know <clears throat> be careful that this is an extrapolation. But this kind of the nuance is completely lost in the mainstream media report. They they take the one million figure as kind of the gospel truth.
0: Yeah, one million one million being just ten percent of eleven million people. Yeah, basically. Yeah, which they which they extrapolate from some survey
1: of eight people. Yeah, eight eight people from eight villages, and then the other report is from the German researcher working at the Victim of Communism Foundation, Adrian Zenz. Uh, so Adrian Zenz came up with a paper where his, he based on his claim primarily on this Turkish, uh, uh, the Uyghur exile group in Turkey, uh, which, by the way, has ties with the Turkestan Islamic Party, which is Al-Qaeda affiliate and fighting in Syria. So this, this uh Uyghur exile group provided a so-called leaked document that shows the number of people being sent to the reeducation camps, and and based on that, Adrian Zenz, again, it's again it's another extrapolation, extrapolated to the to the whole of Xinjiang, to, to he estimated one million figure. Uh, so so it has always been an extrapolation. But it's always reported in CNN as kind of the, some kind of hard figure. They, they have definitely have the, 1 million Uyghur in, in camps. Yeah.
0: When I first became aware of this, I, I just thought to myself, if you're going to lock up 10% of the population of some region. You're gonna need a very, very strong police state. And the remaining nine tenths that are not locked up are gonna be very traumatized. Yeah. Because almost everyone will know someone well who got locked up. Yes. And if there really were a genocide, that would mean the person who was locked up probably died or had a good chance right. of being Right. So and- then then if you then look at the video shot by Western tourists in that during that period of time when travel through Xinjiang was totally unrestricted, or video shot by tourists from other parts of China, and you just see the interactions, how relaxed they are between the police and the local people and the local people and the tourists. It just could not possibly be that 10% of the population was being genocided or locked up. It just didn't, didn't seem consistent with what was in the videos that I watched.
1: Yeah. And there's also like in the media, I, I know this is something, something I notice about the language, you know, when they talk about Uyghurs being oppressed, it's, you know, they're talking about Uyghurs. When they talk about the police, they always talk about Chinese police. You know, they're trying to create some kind of dichotomy between Chinese and Uyghur. And what they don't tell you is most of the police in southern Xinjiang where majority of the Uyghur live, most of the police are Uyghur, you know, <laughs> it's, it's their local police. Um, it's not like they're sending the Han Chinese policemen all the way from Beijing to, to, to Xinjiang. Another thing is, the, uh, is that they try so hard to prove it's genocide, but as you mentioned, there's no mass death. So that's why Adrian Zenz came up with this restriction on birth. Because one of the UN definition of genocide is if somehow they're trying to reduce the population through through forcible abortions or forcible birth control, right? And so that's, that's a new area they're focusing on. So China had a one-child policy since forever. I was, uh, it was already starting to get rolled out when I was born uh, in 1976, because at that time, my parents were working in the Tibetan regions. They got sent there during Cultural Revolution, I was conceived on the Tibetan plateau, but my my parents didn't want me to grow up there because they felt I can get better education and better healthcare if I stay with my grandma in my mom's hometown. So my mom went back to Chongqing to give birth to me, but she was having a hard time finding a hospital that would accept her because uh, the first hospital she went to was kind of a model hospital for implementing. Well, implementing uh, family planning and then one-child policy, and so they're questioning my mom, "Why are you having a second child?" My mom explained, "You know, because that's 1976 is when they're first rolling out the one-child policy. Chongqing as a big city was one of the first to uh, <coughs> was selected, but the, <coughs> that policy didn't affect the Tibetan areas. Uh, it didn't affect <coughs> like the there was no one-child policy applied to Tibetans." And for the Han Chinese uh, working in Tibetan area, like my parents, they were allowed to have two children. So I, I was legitimate. <laughs> and but the but the hospital director didn't understand because they only understand their their government uh, quote and directive for their their hospital. They're like, "What do you mean Tibet is not part of China? <laughs> why, why why are you having two child?" And uh, so my mom had to like you know, go through my grandma's connection, finally find a hospital that I would accept her. And, and, and so I was born.
0: I, oh, I think maybe the point you're leading to is that for Uyghurs during all this time, they were not subject to the one child.
1: Yes. Policy. Yes. So, so, so for the Rubia Kadir, who was uh, crowned like the president of the w- world Uyghur Congress and been fed around as like the courageous uh, Uyghur leaders standing up to China. She had eleven children. You know, the first five children, first six children she had was before the you know rolling out before I think before nineteen seventies before the rolling out of the uh, one child policy. And she had another five children after that because the one child policy was not applied to national minorities. But that started to change in the very like the last few years because now China is going on to the three child policy. But now that three child policy is applied. Equally across nationwide. So, for the first time, yes, birth planning, uh, family planning is being introduced to Xinjiang, but they're not being limited to one child, two child. You know, it's a, uh, they're being, you know, three child policy. We can, we can argue the, you know, the, the, the merits, uh, you know, the, the ethics of family planning. That's a different, that's a different conversation, but they're essentially arguing that is. Same as genocide, right? I mean, so basically Chinese government yes. had been genociding the Han Chinese people since nineteen seventies. <laughs> yeah.
0: I well j- just clarify, so there was a period of time for a few years where, you know, they were actually trying to make noises about outright genocide against Uyghurs yep. in concentration camp like structures. Yep. And they seem to have backed away from that now and now it's sort of shifted a little more toward culture. Yeah, either birth restriction kind of genocide or cultural genocide, meaning like requiring immigrants to America to learn English or something. Yeah. And so my feeling is there's almost no questioning of this narrative. So, you know, if you read New York Times or Washington Post or, you know, even The Economist, there's almost, as far as I can tell, no questioning of this. And they now just. Routinely refer to some kind of nefarious activities, anti-Uyghur activities in Xinjiang. Without now, they don't feel any need to clarify yep. it or even go to the original sources. But you, ha- you have Bill,
1: Ma- you have Bill Meyer recently in his talk show. He said, he said on his talk show, he said China is locking up the entire Uyghur ethnicity. You know, he he just throwing yeah. that out there. Uh, you know, he was he pulled that out of his butt because there's total of 12 million Uyghurs in China. He's claiming China is locking up the entire Uyghur ethnicity of 12 million, which is... when.
0: Well, again, going back to my, you know, I, I, so people are probably tired of hearing me mention YouTube, but you can go on YouTube right now and you can find some tourist video that was shot, you know, in the last three months. And some tourist is talking to some Uyghur who owns a restaurant. You know, the restaurant could even be in Beijing or it could be in uh, Urumqi or something. And and they seem very happy and they're not locked up. And I mean, the whole thing can be, the whole story can be undermined with yeah. five minutes of work,
1: I think. Yeah. But so, I mean, I mean, there's so there are people who get targeted. Those are like kind of the the hardcore Islamist that has been targeted in China. That There's no doubt in the like the people who are are inclined to hardcore islamic fundamentalism and their family that they have been dar- targeted by the chinese state that that that, that is a fact but it, there's not not a definitely not a blanket targeting of the entire ethnicity that's not true and and also i just like to talk about that 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 birth so called the birth genocide again how the hell do you carry a genocide with a three child policy you know how, how? <laughs> mathematically that's impossible well,
0: of course i mean i mean You know, I'm sure the rate of Uyghur population growth has always exceeded and still exceeds the rate of Han population growth in China. So it's it's far from a genocide in that respect. So in terms of how this kind of massive propaganda campaign is carried out, let me give you my model. And I have a little bit of experience with both Ned and the CIA because... My tech startup, the first tech startup I did, which was right around the time you graduated from college, it was right during the first tech bubble, was an encryption startup. And one of our investors was the CIA Venture Fund, which was just newly created around that time. And we worked with Ned and Radio Free Asia to defeat the Chinese firewall, which was just being ah, created at the time. Yeah. So I'm pretty familiar with the idea that, you know, Ned funds these NGOs all over the place. Some of the NGO people are researchers. Some of them are directly active in foreign countries in organizing, you know, pro-democracy movements, pro-democracy organizations.
1: I just Um, wanted to add that, um, Chinese people do appreciate those free uh, VPN and ladders <laughs> to climb climb the firewall Well, So sometimes CIA and uh, RFA do do some good work. <laughs> oh well, yeah. We this is a whole different discussion.
0: We could yeah. have a long discussion about censorship. Yeah, my you know idealistic ideas that some of the technology we were developing at the startup could be used, you know, for this purpose, which is why we were working with organizations like CIA and Ned. But at least it gave me a little window of how the money flows from the federal government to NGOs in these foreign countries and how it is tied into US national security and intelligence operations. So this guy, Adrian Zenz, and perhaps some of the other researchers that purport to document or analyze these anti-Uyghur activities in Xinjiang they're probably getting money, maybe without knowing it, but at least indirectly from, you know, potentially actually central intelligence sources or NED sources.
1: Oh, I'm pretty sure Victim of Communism Foundation is funded by the U.S. government. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, people can just look it up. So
0: there's there's a long list of grants that come from NED. Yep. And I'm familiar with this because, you know, uh, some of the funding for our startup came from U.S. government sources. And that was the whole purpose of One of the purposes of the CIA venture fund was to find technology companies that could help the CIA in its mission. And so they would direct us to, you know, certain funding sources in the federal government. Those sources obviously then are, are, are in a sense doing, uh, what us national security or, or intelligence services would like them to do. But then of course they are then introduced to friendly journalists Hmm. at the establishment papers like New York times, wall street journal, et cetera. And then those journalists who are kind of used to working with sources that are in the U.S. intelligence community will cover the research of these NGOs, which make some allegations about some foreign government. It might be true. It might not be true. But there's a pipeline from the product, the work product that seems to come from an independent researcher at an NGO, but perhaps who is receiving NED funds to prestige media in the United States, and then it's covered uncritically. And eventually, I think in this case has been completely established now as the standard narrative, even though the whole thing is not uh, reflective of actual reality.
1: This makes so much sense because me and the Aussie biker guy that you mentioned, Jerry Gray, so not only they're pushing this narrative in mainstream media, but they're also hitting out people who are challenging their narrative. So Coda Stories wrote a hit piece against me and Jerry Gray, the, the biker, Auss- Aussie biker who who went to Xinjiang. The the, the title is Pro-Beijing Influencers and Their Rose Tinted View of Life in Xinjiang. Yeah. <laughs> and and I had the I had the foresight to ask uh, Isabel uh Cockro, who who was an interviewer, that if it's okay if I record the conversation. Uh, And she agreed to it. So when she, you know, totally posted the interview, our interview out of context, I was able to upload the audio of our interview, you know, to my subscribers and followers on YouTube. And she she was trying to paint me as some kind of airhead surfer dude who just, you know, sprouting pro-Beijing views without totally realizing what's going on. Uh, But it it couldn't be... Sorry to interrupt, but by the way, I, I advise everyone,
0: you know, most people don't deal with the press very often, but I have a fair, have had a fair amount of interaction with the press in my life. And you should record every interaction with every journalist and you should tell them that you're recording it so that they know they can't falsify what you said or take it out of context and let them know that you'll come right at them on their Twitter. If they try to pull something, you'll come right at them at, on their Twitter feed and post what you actually said and the context of what you said, if they quote you out of context. I think that's the only way to keep these people, it, it doesn't actually completely work, but but it is a way to keep them more honest yes, uh, than they otherwise would be. So in your case, yes, I think you guys got smeared. It's a total accident that I was interested in, to me, like Northwest Xinjiang and Southwest Yunnan are like the exotic, interesting parts of China that I'd never been to, because I didn't have time to travel there. I was thinking of traveling eventually, and I was just watching a lot of video. And so this guy, Gary, bicycling across Xinjiang, I found that totally organically just because of my own interest. You know, the the YouTube AI, mm. you know, it watches what you like, and it shows you more of what you like, Not maybe not as well as TikTok. We can get to that later, but, mm-hmm. but it is a decent learning algorithm. And so it just started showing me more and more tourist essentially tourist video of Xinjiang and and it kind of figured out that I I would watch some occasionally like even chinese language content so it started showing me video taken by actual chinese tourists who went to Xinjiang yeah and cuz people don't realize there's tremendous amount of internal within china tourism so some affluent family in beijing or shanghai or shenzhen might go to
1: Xinjiang as a as a week trip, you know, it's uh, as an exotic vacation or something. Yeah, my my auntie, my auntie from Chongqing, they went to Xinjiang. I mean, tens of millions of Chinese domestic tourists goes to Xinjiang every year. Well, before the pandemic, yeah. So you, yeah. So you get
0: this totally different perspective of oh, it's not a police state under lockdown where ten percent of the population is getting genocided. It's actually a place where you just casually go and you fly there and you eat some lamb. And and you know, the the language written on the restaurant menu and on the wall is not uh, Chinese characters. It's the it's the Uyghur language, which is not being suppressed at all. And everybody looks pretty relaxed. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like it doesn't seem like, you know, there are people hiding out like uh, Anne Frank or something in Amsterdam or or something. It's yeah. It doesn't seem like that situation at all. So the whole thing just doesn't jibe with the narrative. Yep. So do you but do you think there's any hope? I, I it seems to me that particular narrative is totally locked in now. And for any Western consumer of corporate media or stand, you know, this mainstream. Is, media, this yeah, is how ahead.
1: the report on China in general, right? For example, there's a famous social credit uh, system in China. It's been first there's a report came out, it went viral, everybody shared it. Every that, that became almost a meme about China's social credit system, right? And then in twenty eighteen, Foreign Policy magazine came out with a debunking article. Say yes, yeah, so the social credit system is actually a myth. But guess what? The debunk. Nobody shared the debunking article. Like nobody pay attention to that. Uh, it's it's the same article. There remember there was an article about this. Uh, some some kind of red chip that the, the chi- China is building this malicious uh, component that might have
0: of- even been Bloomberg. It, I think. It was a pretty respectable yes. source. It was a hardware. It was actually a yes. hardware backdoor that they were talking about, which yes. I think is very implausible. And I don't think there's a single serious technologist who believes that now.
1: But but the layman, the layman, the public just still buy that. I mean, like you you can try to debunk them ten thousand times. There's still some laymen out there think believing this is true. But this is this is kind of the, all the full spectrum propaganda war we're in now, you know, like almost everything we consume about China from mainstream media, you have to be, you have to view it with a suspicious eye because, because of stuff like this.
0: Yes. So, I mean, maybe now we can start spiraling in toward Ukraine because one of the things I noticed with this Ukraine conflict is that there are just wildly divergent narratives about what's happening in Ukraine. And separately, of course, it seems to be just open season on Russians. You can just say any negative thing you want about Russians in general yeah, uh, and discriminate against them without any repercussions. And And I think you may have said this on your Twitter thread. Other people have said the same thing. That when things really go live against China, the amount of discrimination and you know, aggressive action against individual Chinese living in America is going to be just off scale because
1: we're not even white. Yeah, right? I mean, like, at least the Russians can blend in, you know, if they just don't open their mouth. But we, our our face, we wear the face of the enemy, right? Like people, not even just Chinese, anybody who look like remotely, like East Asian is going to become a target in the United States. Like it is now. Now we have people Nepalese, Sri Lankans, and even some, uh, Hispanic lady who got targeted because they thought that, you know, they're Chinese. I mean, it's, it's, it's just gonna get much, much worse if there's actual hot war between China and United States proxy, even.
0: I agree with that. And I think just as anything said about Russia or what's happening in Ukraine, I think you honestly, th- again, this is against the narrative, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. And certainly that's by now also the case for anything you read about China.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the I, I, I actually saw a tweet somewhere. They say, because right now we're, we're, we're being flooded with the stories of like the, 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 the Russian debacle and the, the Russian incompetence in prosecuting the war, right? And then I read a tweet, it says, well, reading kind of the Ukrainian war report is like reading the ancient Egyptian hierographic accounts of their their victories. You know, the the victory is coming closer and closer to the capital. You know, <laughs> like we won a victory hundred miles from our capital. We win another victory fifty miles from our capital. Oh, we win a great victory at our capital. I mean, that's that's kind of what's happening right now. You you see. You see the accounts of like the Russian hardware being destroyed, uh, you know, the r- Russian army get bogged down. But then you look at the, the report where you know, this, this is happening. It's getting closer and closer and closer to Kiev. <laughs> I,
0: I do see some people preparing the readers, you know, the, I guess one nickname I could use for them is the NPCs, the non-player characters mm. who actually consume this media uncritically. The ones who think 10% of the Uyghurs have been killed in Xinjiang or something, you know, they are preparing the NPCs for the fact that the Russians are eventually going to win this thing. Mm -mm. I do see some of that occasionally. Right. So, so I think it's sort of shifting toward, you know, Russians are bombarding civilians, Mm. you know, without any concern and they're terrible. And the brave Ukrainians are fighting like lions and defeating the Russian military, but the event the Russians will eventually win because they're just, uh, they're so overpowering. There are too many of them. They're a horde. Yeah. The Russian horde, yeah, the horde of <laughs> Asiatic Russians is going to still win. Yeah. I mean, aside from the day to day progress of the conflict, there's also the history that goes back to the Maidan coup. Yep. I think all of that is just way too complicated for the average. Yes. American reader to absorb. And so obviously, you know we'll just forget about that. And it was just that Putin went crazy and wants to reestablish yeah. the U.S. Summer, and <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many Americans still think Russia is like the same as uh, uh, Soviet Union. Like Russia today is a very conservative, very anti-communist state. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nothing like Soviet Union, but somehow people think, you know, Russia is bringing back the communism or something.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much communism as... Uh, kind of just a, a very highly authoritarian state, but I, I think, you know, we could go on for a long time to talk about the specifics of the conflict itself and the background, the history of, you know, Ukraine and NATO and all this. But, you know, the, the thing I really wanted to ask you about is that I regard the the U.S. using Ukraine to, you know, in a sense, incite this conflict by, by, by not compromising with the Russians, you know, on their doorstep, yep. okay, we, we've ended up in this conflict. Let's just leave it at that because we, yep. we don't need to get into exactly all the, all the history. People who are interested can read a long blog post that I wrote with with a lot of sources in it, nice. but, but, and, and quoting famous people like, you know, Mearsheimer and, yep. you know, former, for the former ambassador to Russia, who's now our CIA director, who himself wrote all these forbidden things in his biography, which was just published, autobiography, which was just published two years ago. So you can go read what our current CIA director Burns wrote about what the U.S. was doing in Ukraine just two years ago when his biography was published. You can see it's a hundred percent against the current narrative of who's responsible and what events led up to this invasion. But of course, now that he's CIA director under Biden, he's got to keep quiet about it, but it's all recorded (laughs) in his biography. You can order his autobiography off of Amazon and just read it. Yeah, But don't let those, if you're an NPC, don't let those facts, you know, <laughs> sneak into consciousness. What I wanted to discuss with you is that, okay, I believe this is a huge geopolitical mistake for the US to force Russia into a tighter and tighter relationship, even verging now on a dependency because yes. of the strength of sanctions on China. And I think you probably have thought through in more detail than I have the ways now in which china is going to help russia get through this period of sanctions
1: so maybe we you could talk about that a little bit yeah i mean it's it's amazing to me that at the end of the war russia at the end of the cold wars russia wanted to join the west you know when putin became they asked to join nato at one yes, point yes that was putin when he became, first became prime minister in 1997 or 1998
0: yes yeah, yes bill clinton in yes person.
1: yes and because Russia was they just wanted to be seen as an equal partner but because we are so arrogant because we are the sole hyper power now and that we thought we can just aggressively expand nato to their doorstep with no repercussion there, there was a video surfacing of joe biden speaking in 1997 when the russian foreign minister uh, zuganov told him like if you if you keep on pushing nato to our border we're going to have to turn to china and Biden basically laugh in his face and say, well, good luck with that, right? And that's that's what's happening now, ironically. Well,
0: I you know, when you mentioned an old video of Biden, I thought you were going to mention one from maybe around 97, 98, where he, he says Ukraine cannot be part of NATO. This would cause world <laughs> war three. I mean, he effectively says, again, what is the verboten, you know, part of the narrative right now. And, I mean, he just explicitly says it in this old, uh, when he was a senator.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, so, that, that's when... Biden was still coherent and lucid, and he, yeah. <laughs> that was 25 years ago. But, but, you know,
0: this particular brainwashing of the public is much more shocking in a way than the Xinjiang one, because no American can even locate Xinjiang on a map. and <laughs> you know so, But this is one where, you know, a pretty good chunk of the top strategic leadership of the United States has been warning against pushing too hard. In terms of expanding nato to the east and the the status of ukraine you know leading figures former secretaries of defense i mentioned many ambassadors to russia and the soviet union people who actually won the cold war have been warning against this for a long time and now that's all been memory hold even though you can quickly in five seconds locate a video of our president biden you know saying exactly these things when he was a senator but, but, but apparently that's all memory hold, too.
1: But Stefan, who who, who watch uh, government official talk nowadays? Now people get their information <laughs> from TikTok influencers, right? Yes. And, okay. and White House just hosted a top TikTok influencer on White House to debrief them, quote unquote, on the Ukraine war uh, progress. So, yeah. yeah. Mean, <laughs> so
0: the, the, for sure, the West is winning the information war. And the information war is primarily... Being conducted against their own people
1: yes yes and, very successfully um,
0: yeah i in the long blog post sorry i keep advertising but i <laughs> i have a segment from indian television where there's an indian uh, news person interviewing two generals from the retired generals from the indian military and they're calling the war the way you and i are calling the war totally against the Western narrative and even saying things like the Russians are slowed down because they're trying to kill as few civilians as possible. It's not like when the U.S. went into Iraq in 2003. You know, they're they're saying things which are completely remote and would get you banned from Twitter or YouTube. I think this information war is not fooling generals in the Indian military. It is fooling average Americans who read the New York Times.
1: You know, that's, is actually, I hosted a Twitter space talking about China's role and also just China, Russia, U- Ukraine in this war. And I, I, to my surprise, I got a lot of people joining in from the global south, and it was really refreshing to hear these global south voices. You know, people, people from South Africa, from Brazil, from um, from Southeast Asia, from India, and the views they're espousing, just like the Indian generals, are totally different from. The kind of the mainstream narrative we hear in in the United States. Well,
0: I, I think that it's primarily people in the United States and EU and basically Western countries that are, as I said, they're the victims of this information yes. war. People from the global South, BRICS countries, non-aligned countries, they're much more likely to actually to see it from the Russian perspective. Yeah, especially if we're talking about say an educated subclass. Yeah. They can remember reading about what happened in Maidan. Yeah. They can maybe they maybe heard the video or the tape of Victoria Newland talking about installing <laughs> a, a pro American leader. You know, at, you know, debating with the ambassador who that leader should be. You know, yeah. I, I mean, so or, they may remember some of these events
1: from or, eight or years even uh, Newland handing out cookies to the protesters in yes, Maidan, the Cookie Monster, <laughs> yeah. It's really amazing that because Russia and China at the end of the cold war both wanted to have good relationship with the West, right? And in, in fact, both of them prioritize their relationship with the West over with each other. Because it makes sense because US back then was still the world's largest economy. Well, now it is still nominally in, in US dollar terms. But back then, uh US is so much more important. But we, we just thought We don't need them, (laughs) you know, we don't need to care about their security concerns. We can do whatever we want. you know, because like, that's why Biden laughed at Zuganov. It's like, go ahead, turn to China, see if we care. Um, Right. So, so let's, let's focus in on the turn to China
0: and exactly what forms this cooperation is likely to take in, in particular to, to deal with the sanctions. So let's turn to that, because I think that's that's the part of the discussion, which I think maybe a lot of our listeners won't be so familiar with. And there's a lot of detail here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for a lot of the American uh, perception of China, Russia relationship is still stuck in the Sino-Soviet split era. So I I have to say just say that, you know, the Sino-Soviet split was over by 1989 when Gorbachev visited Beijing to meet Deng Xiaoping. You know, it's right in the middle of the Tiananmen Square protest. After that, Russia-China had great relationship and China had a friendly relationship with the Soviet successor state, Russia. Uh, China actually had friendly relation with both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, surprising as it may be to many people, China also had great relation with both Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel. Right, all these states, you know, locked in uh, antagonistic relationships because China pursue a non-interference policy. They focus on trade. China don't care about your domestic issues, and and China also sees the the current issue between Russia and Ukraine as a bilateral issue between Russia and Ukraine. From China's perspective, though, I think uh, China would much prefer stability because <clears throat> they are currently building out the. Belt and Road initiative one part of it the the belt part of it is a Eurasian economic belt which is rely on the eurasian land bridge to build through russia to reach for the chinese goods to reach the eu market right but with the war <coughs> that you know the, <laughs> the eurasian land bridge is not going to reopen anytime soon so, from China's perspective, China rather sees a conflict wrap up as quickly as possible, and so we can return to business as usual. Yes, I think I think that China, their preferred
0: outcome right now is a quick end. Yes, and a quick end in which Putin is not the loser, so he's not yes. destabilized, but the sanction, you know, the the damage from the war, and you know, maybe the sanctions are lifted earlier because the war ends quickly before there's too much death and destruction. And nevertheless, the trauma, to, you know, between Russia and the West is so strong. Yes. that basically now there's no, there's no chance of a Russia, China, of uh, breaking up the Russia, China relationship. Yeah. So I think China is the big winner yeah. from these events as long as it doesn't go so long that Putin loses power because for example he's not able to win.
1: Right. Right, correct. That's correct. I mean there's a lot of complacency in United States uh, to think that oh well China China and Russia they're basically a marriage of convenience like this will never last. But but at the same time US is doing all he could to push Russia and China together since since 1990s. And Yeah. It- well, also I
0: think you in in you were right when you said a lot of the people who claim what you just said are stuck in this nineteen eighties Sino-Soviet split because because they still think that China wants to recover Vladivostok <laughs> and lots of territory, whereas whereas they've settled all those territorial disputes with the Russians. Yep. And and frankly, they demographically the Chinese are moving away from the northeastern part of yep. the country. Nobody wants to live there. So certainly nobody wants to live even further north in Siberia. Yeah, I mean, just so, like
1: Chinese people are no different from from the folks everywhere else. Nobody wants to move to the land of snow. You know, everyone moving to the sound belt.
0: Yeah. And I think I think an outcome where they're able to just trade for the natural natural resources there and just buy it is to them preferable to trying to invade a country that still has thousands of nuclear weapons. Yes. I, I think the logic behind the idea that the the, the Russia China relationship can't last is just wrong. I think I think these people are poorly informed.
1: Yeah, because and and China, Chinese and Russian economy are fully complementary because Russia is a commodity producer and China is a commodity consumer. And, exactly. And also buying from Russia also bypassed the chokehold U.S. Navy has on the streets of Malacca. You know, U.S. Navy made no secret about this, how the streets of Malacca is a chokehold on Chinese energy supply if they wanted yep. to. And that's why U.S. Navy is now in South China Sea carrying out so-called Freedom of Navigation Patrol. This is a, the time when 80% of the shipping through South China Sea is either to or from China. And yet mm-hmm. U.S. Navy is somehow claiming they're protecting <laughs> they're protecting the sea lanes from the Chinese for the Chinese market. It's totally ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. And an interesting analysis of those artificial islands that now have been built by China in the South China Sea, if you look at the missile ranges uh, of what they will install or have installed actually on those islands, it covers the Malacca Strait. So, you know. U.S. naval operations to dominate that region now are going to be much more challenging. I think they have to be conducted by submarines because surface ships can be taken out. Yeah. And the satellite coverage that the Chinese have over that region is very good. So they're able to hit U.S. ships even in the Malacca Strait or even in the, in the Indian Ocean. And, so go
1: ahead. Yeah, that's why the Russian land link is very important. To, to, for China f- to get its energy supply, because there's no way U.S. can overtly attack <laughs> attack pipelines, China-Russia pipeline, without escalating into a nuclear war, right? So whereas even today, uh, U.S. Navy still have superiority over, over the Chinese Navy on the blue water. Yes, obviously that would be a much more difficult
0: competitive struggle. Yeah. Than just switching on the energy flow from Russia. Yeah. So, now, maybe talk about power. Are you familiar with Power of Siberia?
1: Yes. So uh, currently, chi- uh, Russia already has a gas pipeline to China called the Power of Siberia One. Now, this this uh, goes connects a gas field in in the east part of Russia, in the in the Russian Far East, that. This is a gas that would never reach Europe because there's no pipelines to the west. So, so the only market they have is East Asia. So currently, the Power of Siberia One is already supplying gas to China. Now there's now there's also a plan of Power of Siberia Two. So now the gas in Yamal Peninsula, which is in the Arctic circles, goes to Europe. That that's a plan for the North Stream Two. You know to supply a lot of this gas. To Germany, but now Germany held up the certification for Nord Stream two because of the Ukraine war. The power of Siberia two aimed to connect the the Yamo gas field in far north Siberia all the way down, possibly through Mongolia to China. So this this time, before the energy market. <clears throat> kind of the uh, Russian energy supply to China and Europe were separate because they were from completely separate gas fields. Uh, but once the power of Siberia Two is built, I think it will take maybe three to four, four to five years to complete. But once that's built, Europe can no longer count on itself being the sole receiver of energy from those big Siberian gas and oil fields. Because now Russia could easily just export them to China. And and Russia will, you know, especially under sanction. Right. And and I, I guess in some of the estimates I've seen
0: from Western European analysts just in recent days is that they're planning on a decade to switch away from dependence on Russian gas. So, the, you know, to build LNG ports and LNG de yeah. plants and things like this. So it it looks like it could be a race against time with the Europeans trying to wean themselves from Russian energy. And meanwhile, the Russians building this pipeline where they could just, instead of sending it to Germany, sending it to China.
1: Yep. Yep. But again, I think, you know, a lot of it's uh, also Germany is also playing politics, right? They're holding up the certification for Nord Stream 2. They're not installing the pipeline. So, you know, at any time they could reverse that policy and let the right. gas so if, flow.
0: If Zelensky, you know, if, if they come to terms and yep. they say, okay, Ukraine will write neutrality into its constitution, which, which was in its constitution, I think until Maidan, yep. if I'm not incorrect, uh, and then I guess there might be some territorial gains. That's maybe a sticking point right now in the east. Yeah. But definitely the breakaway republics will break away and Crimea will be recognized as Russian. It seems like that would end the conflict. And then after a polite delay, the Germans
1: could just turn Nord Stream 2 back on. Yep. I think that's, that's probably the German calculus right now. Uh, but uh, we don't know whether U.S. will allow that to happen because I, I'm, there's a lot of hawks right now who want to turn Ukraine into Russia's Afghanistan, right? And to, to bleed the Russians to the last Ukrainians. Uh, right. And, and that's, I mean, the, the goal was never to actually absorb Ukraine into as a full member of NATO because Ukraine is much more useful as a buffer zone where they can, you know, carry out proxy warfare against Russia Russians without having the fear of being escalated into a nuclear exchange, right? So, so I, I, yeah, for, we'll have to see how that results. But in the meantime, you know, China is throwing an economic lifeline to Russia. As you rightly point out, China do not want to see Russia falter, to Russia fail coming out of this, um, because, you know, before. Ukraine war, China, let's remember, China was fully in the crosshair of U.S. (laughs) So, you know, if Russia falls, you know, China will be much more isolated in terms of U.S. uh, strategic encirclement. That's why China will probably do do its best to keep the Russian consumer supply with consumer goods, which it can. The, the, could we, could we talk about the mechanics of
0: that? Okay, there are no U.S. sanctions preventing, say, Huawei or Xiaomi from selling products in Moscow, right?
1: Um, And go ahead. So, okay, so for Xiaomi, U.S. could, currently there's no sanctions, but U.S. could apply sanctions on Xiaomi because Xiaomi is still building on a lot of the U.S.-made platform and U.S.-made components because Xiaomi is is on Android platform, right? It relies on Android. One of the okay, reason, okay. one of the reason but, it, U.S. sanctioned Huawei is because Huawei trying to build its own independent OS system and trying to yes. uh, trying to do its own chip design, not using Qualcomm chips, and that that's what led U.S. to to come down with a ton of bricks on Huawei. But on yes. the other on the other hand, Huawei has no incentive now not to sell to Russia. <laughs> it's right. So Huawei
0: Huawei could sell Harmony OS handsets to that's their now android alternative they could they could sell harmony os handsets to russia but the, but the, but, the but, chips...
1: but but yeah huawei still have a problem with the chip because that's a, right because uh, it's under semiconductor sanction by united states and china is still i think uh, several years away from from cracking the cracking the code on how to make um, you know seven nanometer chips commercially uh, commercial grade seven nanometer chips domestically because before right. Huawei relied on T- TSMC, the Taiwan semiconductors. And- right.
0: So, so, so in terms of phones, things that need say seven nanometer or below twenty ish nanometer. I don't know if this was your area of double E or not, but but the below twenty ish nanometer, which I think you know they have to go to Samsung or TSMC for. Yeah. Uh, those products could be stopped from flowing into
1: Russia. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. Maybe, um, I mean, that's how how U.S. pretty much killed Huawei's handset market. Like you before, I mean, Indonesia, there's like Chinese phones everywhere. Before, it's very easy to get Huawei phone, but after U.S. sanctions, basically, Huawei handset disappeared from all the shops because Huawei they only they only stock up, uh, you know, a limited number of chips. Their stockpile is running low and. And they have to give priority to their other business. One of their sub brands called Honor, they've spun out now. So maybe Uh, Honor
0: But but, but the thing is that once, once it becomes a big item in Russia, it's still possible for the U S just to sanction them and say, okay, fine. You, you you guys are selling too much of this stuff in Russia. So now we're going to cut you off from TSMC chips, for example. Um, so that, that's definitely a, 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 a hole in what. China could potentially provide Russia in terms of just general consumer goods that you buy on Alibaba on uh, AliExpress. <laughs> I, I notice a lot of the reviews on AliExpress are by from Russians. Actually, um,
1: yeah. it
0: seems like there's not going to be any shortage of consumer goods, right? Right, they can get from China, and I, not all Russian banks have been sanctioned. So I think even the transactions, or maybe that maybe the Russians can just download, you know, AliPay or something. <laughs>
1: Just so so after Mastercard and Visa sanctioned yes. Russia, Russian banks are in talks with uh, uh, China Union, Union Bank. Pay. Yeah, they're they're syncing up with Union Pay. Also, um, now uh, after the SWIFT sanctions, uh, Russian companies are are uh, in talk with China to switch to the SIP system, which China uh-huh. built in 2015 as an alternative to SWIFT. For possible scenario like this, for the scenario where where US is going to apply SWIFT sanction to kick companies off the SWIFT, and initially it was probably designed with Chinese company in mind, but the the, the the SIP system allowed, for example, the Russia-China trade to be settled in yuan instead of dollars. So it's right. Like, so so in terms of general
0: consumer products, setting aside chips for the moment, it doesn't seem like there's any problem either for. Russian companies or even Russian individuals to order consumer goods from China. No. So the, the amount of suffering, I think, is going to be quite limited in those categories, right? I
1: there's, mean, there's uh in fact, there's, there's a, some TikTok videos that's going around in China, social media right now is uh, the Russian, bunch of Russian uh, TikTokers, they're going to the mall right now in Russia and all the Western brands are closed. All the Western brand uh, stores are closed, but the Chinese stores are still open like Xiaomi, right? <laughs> Xiaomi's or leaning,
0: li, leaning li yeah. sneakers and, yeah. and tracks. Oops. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, what are the other vulnerabilities? So aircraft spare parts, have you
0: thought at all about
1: that? Yes, so that is a problem because uh, China itself rely on, you know, a lot of the components sourced from Boeing, uh, uh, Airbus, etc. cetera. So if, if U.S. and EU decide to apply sanction against these Chinese companies, they will be forced, they might be forced not to supply to Russia as well. So so that that is a that is an issue yeah
0: so is it possible that aviation commercial aviation travel within Russia, say three months from now could be almost sh- sh- you know shrunk to zero because of lack of spare parts
1: i I'm not an expert on that, but i, I it will definitely be impacted. I imagine
0: right. because they don't have an easy alternative, right? Yeah. They, they can't. Even if, you know, there's this whole issue of they have leased planes and they're saying we're just going to keep the planes, Yeah, you know, since you, by the way, this, the, the idea that our central banks could just take the foreign reserves yeah. of the
1: Russians, hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, if that's not an act of war, I don't know what an act of war is. I mean, actually. they did that to Afghanistan just before that, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. we've well, took... we, we done it many times to other countries, but yeah. to do
0: it to Russia is kind of a big deal, but, uh, they're, they. They're going to get away with it, I guess. But yeah. okay, but but although they will keep the, they may just keep all the leased planes. They really? are not going to be able to fly them without spare parts.
1: Yeah, yeah, that 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 could be. I mean, it depends how much U.S. want to crank up the fire on China for doing business on Russia. That uh, I mean, because it, it's it's really paradoxical because now you have also have uh, Blinken asking China for help right to resolve the, yes. of the U- Russia Ukraine issue but at the same time US is still have all these sanctions on different chinese companies right they they just recently uh today there was a news where the TikTok Oracle deal was supposed to come into a a, a close because uh you know the, the US government is forcing uh, TikTok to to into a partnership with Oracle where they will have all these security experts you know vetted by the US government to to be embedded with TikTok to make sure the the TikTok data stays in U.S. and, and, you know, U.S. government can can get a hold of that. that. I saw that, you know,
0: it it is actually rational for the U.S. to do this because the information war partially is on TikTok. Yeah. And if they didn't have control over what kind of TikTok videos American teens could could watch, then uh, China could potentially win the info war. Yeah. yeah in the future so I, I can i understand why they want to do that so how do you what what do you rate the odds of a of a relatively near term
1: settlement oh man this is this is hard this, you know predicting future is always foolhardy because before the war i honestly thought russia uh, putin was just saber rackling and 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 i thought at most he would do is maybe send troops into the donbass region into the breakaway yeah. republic I- I also thought he wasn't going to go in big. Yeah, I mean, I had an argument. I had a I had a debate with a uh, with uh, 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 a military watcher guy in my Facebook group. He was saying there's a high chance of of Russia full scale Russia invasion. I didn't believe him, but now it turns out he was right. I was wrong because his argument was, you know, Russia put all its military asset around Ukrainian borders. This would be just too expensive for a military exercise or just even just a high pressure uh, negotiation tactic. It, you know, they, they, those troops had to do something. So he was right. I, I So well, I, my guess
0: is that sorry to interrupt you. My, my guess is that Putin and his circle regret not doing this in 2014. Yes. 2015 yes. when it would have been easy. And so I think maybe he regards it as part of his legacy that he's got to He's got to settle this matter.
1: So, I maybe this is a so people make a lot of comparison between China, uh, you know, mainly China and Taiwan versus Russia and Ukraine. This is actually a perfect uh, uh, transition point because for for one of the strategic calculus for Putin is because. Ukraine was getting all these Western fundings and NATO fundings. The, what the Ukraine is actually building up its military capability since 2014. So maybe he felt he, he had to act now rather than later before, before he couldn't do, you know, maybe, maybe at some point in the future, he would not be able to do what he's doing now. Whereas.
0: Well, I agree with you because obviously they have strengthened the Ukrainian military quite a bit
1: since 2014, 2015. Yep. Yeah. And and the argument against China to do a full Normandy on uh, on Taiwan speech is, is that the strategic calculation is quite different because you know in in nineteen ninety I I live in China in 1980 so I remember at that time you know Hong Kong was like something like 25% of GDP of entire mainland China and and you know by, back then Hong you know Taiwan's economy was many times bigger than hong kong so but that has shrunk significantly and you know taiwan's uh, hong kong economy is like one it's like 1 or 2% of the the entire gdp of of mainland china now and uh and and you know so the, the, the cross strait calculus china is growing stronger and stronger by day the mainland china is growing stronger and stronger by day so it's a quite different Scenario, let's say Russia versus Ukraine. So China has a lot less time is on China's side. Time...
0: I agree. With, I agree with that, and I, I think that you know they would rather wait until the relative power just you know the difference in relative power is so strong that they can yeah. just leverage a peaceful settlement out of Taiwan.
1: Yep, and and really right. the China Taiwan the, the mainland China Taiwan issue is really a, a issue between U.S. and China. All right. So so China is really waiting for the for the time when China was so strong that US couldn't say no. That's yeah,
0: and or the US will sell Taiwan to China exactly. or some other concessions. Exactly. But here's here's a way here's a, a plausible scenario where things can go wrong and they're they're gonna be forced to, to go, which is that you know, the US has not tried to develop the kind of intermediate range missiles that the chinese developed so the chinese right now have within that theater of the western pacific they can hit all the u.s bases they can hit all the taiwanese bases easily with precision weapons and also aircraft carriers but the smart american strategists want to now that they've pulled out of the intermediate range missile treaty with the russians they can develop similar kinds of missiles and put them all over the pacific pointed at china And that, that could actually make an invasion of Taiwan extremely difficult.
1: I mean, I I think that's what the THAAD was kind of start of that, right? When they put the THAAD on, on Korea, um, that, that was,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about anti-missile missiles. I'm talking about offensive missile capability, which can be used to take out ships easily because satellites now can image from low earth orbit. Satellites can track all the ships, not, not just military ships, but even commercial ships can all be tracked in real time now. So if I know where your ship is, uh, I, and I have a missile with a range of a thousand miles, I can just take your ship out. And that just, it's a fa- a weird oddity of history that the Chinese were not part of the intermediate range missile, uh, nuclear treaty, but the Russians and the Americans were. So the Russians and the Americans didn't develop these, this kind of missile maneuvering terminal seeking intermediate range missile. The Chinese, like DF-21, DF-26, and lots of other variants now, they've now developed, they developed all this stuff and the Americans didn't, but now the American strategists realize they're going to need this stuff. So if they start putting this stuff in all around the bases in the Pacific, the calculus, it may be a little bit more like Putin's calculus here, where if he doesn't go now, he may not be able to go later. And so that that's the most worrisome thing for me.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, the, there is this thinking among the Pentagon that U.S. have a short time window of, of from maybe ten to fifteen years, while China still hasn't fully developed its uh, military capabilities. To you know, while while U.S. still have main military superiority for U.S. to do something, right? Because yeah, uh, the 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 thing is after. After twenty years, Chinese economy will be so large that you know it would Ch- U.S. Even if U.S. wanted to do something, you would not be able to. And 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 yes, it's this is so so. The next ten to fifteen years is is kind of the danger zone window. Um, uh, I, I
0: agree. I, do, I agree with that general observation, but I would even say a little bit more strongly. I would say when you war game out a Taiwan conflict today. U.S. gets beat, so so China actually can take the island and actually hold off U.S. forces. I think in in most of these war game outcomes.
1: Okay, but, but the problem no. is, how do you prevent it from escalate into a nuclear exchange? That that's see the the how I I have not seen anybody talk about de escalation. Right, there's a lot of talk about escalation, but in, in, if a, if a U.S. aircraft carrier group gets sunk. If your U.S. aircraft carrier gets sunk, how is it not going to escalate into a nuclear exchange? This oh, is, right, right. I, th- right. I think
0: the gamble that Xi Jinping would have to make, like suppose they had to go now or three years from now or something, right? Say for whatever reason, like right. uh U.S. tells Taiwan to declare independence yes. and you know, recognizes them. But, I mean, I don't think it's likely, but suppose it happens three years from now. I think it potentially, if you're Xi Jinping, you. Th- it's reasonable to think you can you can take the island, and before the U.S. can marshal a response, you can present them with a fait accompli and very strong uh, area denial capabilities because of these intermediate range missiles, conventional missiles, and then you then have to gamble that the U.S. is not going to go for it. If they go for it, then it's very tough to try to retake Taiwan or you know cut off the oil to China, whatever it is it's very hard then to avoid that escalating into a nuclear confrontation yeah. if you, if you can quickly go and get taiwan before the us can respond in 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 large force then it's it's up to them to decide do they want to incite world war 3 or not and i think that's the only way that china can think about it but that window could close if the modern if the pivot to asia is a pivot to the pacific that obama wanted to start Actually, is executed properly, which means new weapon systems, hypersonic missiles, intermediate-range missiles, stationed by the U.S. on its existing bases all around the Western Pacific. That actually prevents the scenario that I was just describing where they can quickly grab the island. So right. it, it's, it's a more subtle and complicated strategic situation, I think, than most people appreciate.
1: Right. So it's the thing I look at it is that government on Taiwan would not do anything big or drastic without explicit approval or support from the United States government. Right. So, I so there's only, we know what China's red line is, right? The red line is Taiwan government on Taiwan declared formal independence. So Taiwan will not declare formal independence unless U S wanted them to, which the only reason U.S. will want them to is to go China to attack and and, and to to spark a war. But I don't I don't see at even at this point what what U.S. gain from that. You know, U.S. military industrial complex gain a lot from continued tension with China, right? They can continue the grip from a near trillion dollar military budget. But what do they gain from actual war? I, I fail to see that.
0: Well, I think if you're a long-term strategic thinker for the United States, the logic is that currently the U.S. is the hegemon in Asia, and we don't want China to become the hegemon or to displace us as hegemon because Asia is the center of economic gravity on the planet is shifting steadily toward Asia. So, so most of the GDP in the planet is in that region now. So. If China, if you're an American strategic planner, you just want to keep China from becoming predominant in Asia.
1: This is basically and the Miersheimer's uh, Miersheimer's line, right? I mean, the, he, what he yes. has been proposing. But you know, even Miersheimer's uh, proposal is not really being fully adopted implemented by the U.S. U.S. Uh, leaders. You know, they, because Mearsheimer's, one of the Mearsheimer's proposal is actually U.S. make nice with Russia. You know, don't stare up trouble in Ukraine. Well, of, of,
0: and, of course, uh, of course, a, a correct execution of the pivot to Asia means you stabilize your relationship with Russia, <laughs> you stabilize Europe, you, you you know, you maybe ideally neutralize Russia Yes, be China, and then you can pivot to Asia. Yes. And that's all in shambles. And that's all in shambles because of stupid
1: execution by our neocons in Ukraine. Well, I mean, this is always, but this has always been the case though. I mean, like Alan Greenspan talked about the reason we went to Iraq, right? Was to control the flow of oil. He says not to, to, to take their oil, but to control the flow of oil. But the idea was that the Persian Gulf is b- becoming very important. Supplier to China, and by U.S. going to Iraq, U.S. can di- dictate the flow of oil. But that, you know, we we all know how that went, right? I mean, <laughs> you well, can't. Not only, well,
0: I mean, I agree with what you said, and 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 not only did we fail in Iraq, and it was a monumental failure. If you look carefully at what the Saudis are doing, the Saudis, for example, the Saudis are not cooperating. MBS wouldn't even talk to biden recently about yep. increasing oil production but i think the saudis are calculating at what point could they switch their security yep. guarantees from u.s defense to china and russia
1: yeah i mean the people are hedging now people are hedging because y- y- the u.s record in the past two two three decades hasn't been very encouraging i mean like it, it, like i remember watching taiwan talk shows you know when when U.S. withdrew from Kabul, people are already making the comparison between, you know, kind of Taiwan and Afghanistan. And and now they're definitely watching what's going down in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, we, we, we let Afghanistan, we didn't win in Afghanistan against a very, you know, uh, not a very advanced military threat. We are not going to even try in Ukraine. Right. Oh. And so if you're Saudi. And you're saying, well, who's going to guarantee my security in the future? Uh, Russians and Chinese or Americans? Um, maybe at that point, for sure, you got to start hedging and maybe you're going to start selling oil in RMB
1: denominated contracts. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that that the Saudi U.S. deal to price oil in dollar back in 70, that was a basis for the petrodollar and U.S. dollar. That is damage. under
0: threat. Yeah, that is under threat now.
1: Yep. And And, that's by U.S. policy. I mean, a lot of the U.S. decline in the last uh, 20 decades is self-inflicted. I mean, it's it's entirely I think it's entirely self-inflicted almost. I mean, you have to give some
0: credit for China for successfully modernizing and stuff like that. But but they also had a lot of help from U.S. corporations. So I want to just, you know, even more broadly, U.S., China competition in the future. I mean, that's, that's the overall theme and these, these other things are just actually small theaters uh, of, of the bigger conflict. You know, I, one of my theses, which I think is heavily overlooked is that if you look at the production of highly skilled engineers and scientists, if you really try to attempt a good, an actual honest calculation of the rate at which the two countries are producing, you know, strong technologists. There's actually an order of magnitude in favor of China. Yes. And in fact, you you could even argue that starting about now or maybe 10 years in the future, China will produce, be producing, you know, highly skilled technologists at a rate which equals the entire world ex-China combined. So if, if you, if you look at the PISA scores of this PISA's administered to 15 year olds in all OECD countries and you say, okay. And there's a german academic who's done this whole analysis and published it so if you if you look at the kids who score at pisa level six which is in western countries the top roughly one to three percent of the population you know basically mastering a certain level of mathematics by the time they're 15 and you just add up you just take every country in the world x china and then you take china and you add it up and you say, well, how many PISA level six kids are there in the world? China is roughly comparable to the rest of the world combined.
1: I, I, and, used, to, uh, I used to tell people that if I had, had I stayed in China, I don't have a very, I mean, I I um, I have I don't have a very good chance of getting into top Chinese elite university like Tsinghua or Beijing University. But look at me, I came to the US and I got into Caltech. <laughs> so, um, I mean, in in China there's a lot of lot of smart people you know i remember in junior high i was only uh the, as hard as i try i was only like just barely above average i was maybe like yeah bare like in a class i'm thinking of my junior high class of cuz we we did class rankings back then in, in a class size of like 63 i i was like 29 <laughs> like but, the top 29. Know, it is, <laughs> but it is true that i think you were a little more
0: from what you told me, you were a little more carefree when you were in China. And then when you came to Chicago, you were a little yes. under a lot of pressure. More pressure. You do
1: well. So. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely more driven in the United States. And, I, but yeah. part of that uh, drive is also because when I came to U.S., I realized a lot of my peers don't really give a shit about study. So, yeah. so if I just put in the effort and to actually study, I I'm able to get ahead. Whereas that yeah. wasn't that wasn't even possible for me back in China because everybody was working hard. <laughs> but in US, I realized by me working hard, I can get ahead. I can become like top, right. rank one or, or third in in class, which for me wouldn't would wouldn't even be imaginable back time back in China. So, l- just to elaborate on
0: this thesis a little bit, so. It's easy for people to counter and say, "Well, these test scores—they don't mean anything." And we know these Chinese people are studying all the time, so of <laughs> course the test—the test overinflates <laughs> their capabilities, right? That the test is a overestimator of their capabilities versus people in other countries. Maybe that's true, but I could take another line of attack uh, of evidence, which is that if you do follow technology broadly. Yes and you ask what is the rate of progress say in the last 10 years of China in jet engines, space exploration, satellite technology, microchip technology, software development, you know AI, uh, material science, quantum compute you know you you make the entire list of everything and you see that they're competitive with the rest of the world in every single one of those categories now.
1: And this was the China yeah. when I was born that couldn't even produce its own chemical fertilizers. You know, back yeah. back in yeah. 1970s China was a raw commodity exporter. Yeah? Exported crude oil to Japan and imported refined products like gasoline and fertilizers. I mean, that right. yeah.
0: But I think this trend really sped up in the last 10 years because yeah. 20 years ago when I would visit other theoretic, other physicists, high energy physicists, for example, in China, I could see they were not at the research frontier. They, they could train students who would come to the top US PhD programs, Mm -hmm. but they did not have top PhD programs themselves. Yes. That is not true anymore. Now they have top PhD programs and, you know, you can just see across the board innovation. So, so if you could compute a first derivative of tech tech advancement rate and average it over all important areas of technology, their first derivative would be astonishingly high, like, like unbelievably high compared to any country right now. That's, so, but but 40 people are capable of doing that analysis because
1: they're not following China yeah. across all of these areas simultaneously. I mean, that's why US sanction on China was specifically targeted at semiconductors because semiconductor is still one of the few areas where U.S. still have chokehold on China. Yep. Yep. That's one of the few,
0: and there, you know, it'll be a very interesting question. I I did a podcast with a guy in Taiwan who follows the semiconductor industry to discuss with him, you know, the rate of catch-up in, you know, cutting-edge fabs and and fabrication technologies. So, yeah, it's interesting because that's, that's probably where the gap is the biggest, they're fully dependent on, you know, ASML and, you know, applied materials and other U.S you know, somewhat U S controlled technologies in cutting edge semiconductors, but it's not true in many other areas. So for example, you know, there's a Rover on the moon right now, which is a Chinese Rover. There's a Rover on Mars, which is a Chinese Rover. There's a Chinese space station. It's not the international space Station; it's their own space station. And when you look at the teams of the engineers and scientists who built all the stuff I just mentioned, they're young. They're so young. And yes. so I just think people are sleeping on this particular point. They're thinking it's just like before where they kind of still need a little help from U.S. companies. They need to steal some technology. They need grad students in the U.S. to bring it back to them. I don't think that's true anymore. Actually. That, I
1: think they they don't important. realize the time has changed. I mean, at, at the time of my, my father's generation, right? Like my dad, when my dad went to college in the 1960s, he was one of the few people in China who, who got into university. And when he was, uh, uh, you know, when he graduated in 1968, after cultural revolution, people like him got sent to the countryside right to raise pigs. My dad got to send to Tibet, Tibetan regions, like, but when he he was sent there, the, the local party secretary asked him, Oh, so what do you do? He said, I'm a, I'm a electrical engineer. You know? They say, "Oh, engineer, great! We need somebody to build the roads <laughs> because they don't even know what to do with him." uh but That is not the China today. I mean, like especially after Cultural Revolution, this is one of the reason you mentioned. A lot of the people, you know, working on the Chinese space program are so young because these are the fresh new generation that was being educated post Cultural Revolution. You know, like that. That's when China's education system. Have got back on track, you know. China's economy start growing again. It, it now it's the total like China is finally getting back on track, and that's what we're seeing right now. You know, one of
0: the one of the areas where I, I kind of notice again a similar effect is if I compare the effectively the kind of recommendation engine in TikTok versus YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the the TikTok one is like. Su- a super yeah. genius compared to the uh, YouTube one. Like it, it basically addicts you almost right away. Like you just start playing with the TikTok app for a little while, and then suddenly you're addicted because it just keeps showing you stuff that you're interested. You know. Now,
1: now China, West, China has a yeah, huge don't. advantage in AI because you know AI they need you need need a lot of sample size, a lot of training. Chinese large Chinese population give them that advantage. Give them tons of data, and that's yeah, what, but you know. Go ahead. Okay.
0: But I, okay, I agree with that in general and in particular applications, for sure. There, there are places where the Chinese data advantage is huge, but if you think about TikTok versus YouTube, YouTube's user base worldwide is pretty huge. So That's I do true. not think, and TikTok is what, at least when it started was a fairly small, you know, ByteDance was, was not that predominant. So I think they actually have better algorithms
1: for, yes. for
0: addicting you to their content than YouTube does. Yes. Uh, that's my judgment. Well, and, that's uh, why
1: US government, uh, try to force them to give up their source code. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, the other, the other thing I was going to say, um, going back to narrative information warfare and narrative control, I notice is that this information war, you know, say in the context of Ukraine or vis-a-vis China, it, it, it's a war on Americans, because they're trying to control what Americans know or understand about the war in Ukraine or about the situation in China, things like this. But what's interesting is because there was so much suppression of the, you know, roughly half, maybe a little bit less than half, but roughly half of the population that like Trump, those people have been suppressed so much that they've become a hundred percent distrustful of mainstream media and narratives. Yeah. So I actually notice if you go to the pro-Trump conservative sites now, they are quite capable of detecting the falsity of the standard narrative about Ukraine. So I'm starting mm. to see them cover the Ukraine war in a much more realistic fashion
1: but, than uh, the New York Times. Are, yeah, go ahead. But I want to add caveat on that because that, but that's because the U.S. always have this kind of divide, right? That the Republicans always. Uh, the 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 Democrats want to go to war with Russia. <laughs> and the Republican wants to go to war with China. So RT always had you know has a pandering for the for the right wing and and the and then for people like Fox News, like people like uh, Chris Tucker, they see Russia as a fellow white Christian country <laughs> and and where they you know share much more uh, similar cultural values. Than say China, this alien civilization. I mean, I, in one of the Tucker video, he when he made a very good point about uh, this disinformation warfare against Russia by saying, you know, Russia didn't do this to us, Russia didn't do this to us. But he paraphrasing a way to saying the our real enemy is China. He's he's saying yeah, I yeah,
0: yeah. In fact, I think that he had a long segment on the bio warfare, the bio research labs in Ukraine yes. and, and he, 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 completely undermined the Pentagon's narrative and the white house spoke. but then he said our real enemy is China. Right. Yep. So, so, or we hate the, we hate everything about the Chinese government or even the China, I think he said. Yeah. So I agree with you that. So yes, in the, in this conservative media outlet and conservative websites and media outlets, they're more prone to discover the falsity of the narrative vis-a-vis Russia. Than about China and they're, they're liable to embrace all kinds of untrue, unrealistic things about China as well. I think that's definitely true. So I think that's an important distinction, but they're just also just generally less willing to accept things told to them by the Washington post or the, the New York times or, you know, CNN. So, so the things are kind of broken. So the information war isn't completely a victory (laughs) because our own half of our own population actually, you know doubts large chunks of the narrative
1: yeah in, in terms of us context yes but unfortunately it's still negative for china <laughs> even like among the us leftists you know they would uh, they would decry the us propaganda against countries like cuba or venezuela but they will believe everything about xinjiang you know <laughs> you said in the i, I agree I, I think both
0: left and right are pr- in the us are prone to believe all the negative things said about China,
1: yeah, and I think it's because of the cultural aspect is a big thing because you know they for for Latin America, uh, there's a a cultural closeness you know for people to get the context uh, to gain the understanding. and for them, China still remained this large alien civilization that they know nothing about. and so they yeah, absolutely I mean, if you look at the deep deep history of humanity, I mean, The
0: Eurasian landmass is where the highest development happened, right? In terms of technologies and, you know, writing systems and, you know, all kinds of things, right? I mean, some exceptions like, you know, Incans and Mayans and things like this, but, but mostly on the Eurasian landmass and then at the two extremes, right? You have the far west, which is Europe and you have the far east. So the absolute furthest points from each other on that Eurasian landmass you have two great civilizations now
1: which are the 21st century is going to see which one ends up on top well i'm going to challenge you on that unless you include the far west as a part of uh you know middle east mesopotamia and all that because for the longest time that area was a center of civilization and the western europe was on the fringe at least until the roman empire oh, I, right no no i totally agree with you but,
0: i i should refine what i meant so most of the highest developments at any given time in human civilization were somewhere on the Eurasian yes. landmass. Yes. Now in the 21st century, the two, you know, powerful regions are the far west and the far east, Yeah. but they are the, also the most culturally separated. Yes. yes. And yes. so that's why it's, it's very alien. It's so easy yeah. for people with European backgrounds to believe the worst things about, uh, say China or Japan. Yep. On the other hand, China or Japan, having, you know, almost been colonized and being the underdogs, they understand the West much better than the West understands the East.
1: Yes, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And also because, you know, English became the language, uh, lingua franca, right? Like for for Chinese and and other East Asians, you know, learning English is a must, but not necessarily for monolingual Americans, right? We don't need to learn. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, okay. I've kept you more than two hours. So maybe I should let you enjoy your Saturday morning now.
1: (laughs) No, this Um, is great. I actually greatly enjoyed this uh, conversation. We could, I feel like I could geek out on this forever.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Well, we, we can always follow up. I, you know, I don't know how many listeners can, I guess if they can put up with three hours of Joe Rogan, they can put up with two (laughs) hours from us, but, um, let me, let me, and cause I, yeah. I if, even if you don't have, even if you don't have to get going, I have to get going <laughs> at some point you're in, I guess what we could call Southeast Asia. Yes. And one of the most overlooked kind of polities is ASEAN. Yes. Which, you know, I think actually, if you project a little bit, a- I think the ASEAN GDP could be comparable to Europe you know, relatively soon, or or at least it's not, certainly not negligible. And it's something like 600 million people at ASEAN, right?
1: Well, if you just take Indonesia, right? I mean, Indonesia is, is the fourth most populous uh, country in the world, just behind the United States, right? But you you don't, you don't, we don't really hear a lot about Indonesia in (laughs) the U.S. No, (laughs) I
0: mean, these are huge, huge countries and, and, and gradually actually becoming in terms of economic weight, significant. Yeah. I, I guess I've been to Bali and I've also been to places like Kuala Lumpur. I just feel like that area is, is incredibly important. In fact, to some extent, the competition, as long as it stays economic and not military, the competition in Asia is largely, for example, whether China is going to become, you know, more influential in ASEAN than the U.S.
1: I think uh, in the economic sphere, I think U.S. already lost in the competition uh, uh, versus China in the ASEAN. I mean, that's why that that is one of the reasons why the pivot Asia is mostly military. It's it's not even about economics uh, because the you know chi, China's pole in the region is, is just so much larger than United States. I mean, I I don't like the only U.S. companies are in Indonesia is like. All the extraction companies, right? Well, like the Freeport Moran, they operate mines in in uh, in, Guinea, in, in Papua, in the Western Papua, and um, right, yeah, yeah. The, but but chi- China is in like every facet of the economic life in Asia, at least from what I observe on Bali, right? Like the Chinese smartphone, you know, Chinese made the smartphone affordable to a lot of people on the global South. You know, my babysitter has a smartphone, <laughs> you know, they're all Chinese made phones. And yeah, and that, and, and we are all right now I'm talking to you on Huawei build a 4G infrastructure. So, yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, I think this is for insular Americans. It's hard for that, or even Europeans, it's hard for them to imagine this, but It throughout most of Asia, if, if you just walk around, like, I bet if you look up on your wall, like maybe the air conditioner is Mm. a Chinese brand, the refrigerator could be a Chinese, you could hire, you know, uh, maybe the, even, you know, almost everything around you might be some kind of manufactured product that actually came to Indonesia from China. Yeah. Right. So, you know. I think it's just hard to understand how you know the the leading trading partner for most of these countries is going to be China. Yeah, and so it's I think it's just I don't see how the U.S. is going to reverse that trend. That trend is just going to continue building.
1: Yeah, I mean, see a lot of the U.S. talks about you know oh you know China's taking over economically, but one of the thing is U.S. a lot of U.S. multinationals, some U.S. companies. They're just not that interested in to invest in a lot of the global south places, uh, you know, for example, African countries or or South East Asian countries, unless you know it's oil and gas <laughs> or mines. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I just don't see a lot of Americans wanting to, you know, get involved in winning business in those countries. It's almost like we're just ceding it to other competitors. Yep. So, um, do you do you see yourself living out the rest of your days in Bali, surfing every morning?
1: <laughs> That's the plan. That's the plan. You know, my I, I always had a long term plan that eventually I'm gonna retire to some Pacific islands <laughs> and surf. But I just uh, I just got just move up my retirement schedule a little bit. So yeah, this is my this is my life. I'm living my dream right now, and I'm grateful to my uh, Patreon followers for supporting me. That's fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm very happy
0: for you, and I'm glad I could finally get you on the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, it took it took a long time.